We're going to ask you to stand at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. And uh, we have been considering a series of messages from the book of Proverbs. And today uh, we're going to talk about the master craftsman. The master craftsman. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 29. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command... When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Uh, Back in chapter 3, we looked at what God had to say about happiness, God's wisdom for our life, and how it speaks to us about human happiness. And there, not once but twice, uh, the Bible tells us that happy is the person who finds wisdom. Happy are all then who retain uh, God's wisdom. Uh, and there were a number of things, another, a number of promises that were na- made back there in Proverbs chapter 3. And we looked at those promises, the things that wisdom, God's wisdom, promises to you and to me. And though he introduced those all the way back in chapter 3, we have watched then week after week as we have brought these subjects back up. And in this entire section that goes through chapter 9, uh, he has gone back to those subjects again and again. And today, uh, we're coming to the last one of those subjects. Uh, if you'd go back, we're not going to do it this morning, but you can do it this afternoon. Uh, you can go back or just glance at it real quick. Uh, that he brought up the fact that God is our creator in verse 19 of chapter 3. And we might wonder how that relates to human happiness. Uh, folks, it is a source of joy comfort, and yes, even happiness, for us to know that our God rules over this earth, that he's made it, he has a plan for it, he operates it, he's in control, he's in charge, he has a plan for it. Our God has set the foundation of this earth, and in our text today, we're going to see him develop that uh, in a much more, uh, much more detail Uh, And he does so, as he so often does in this section especially, uh, by comparing God's wisdom uh, to a virtuous woman. And uh, the whole end of the book, of course, brings us, it was uh, not written by Solomon, but Lemuel, uh, but that whole book then, a whole chapter was devoted to the virtuous woman, Proverbs 31. Uh, but uh, we see this again and again, and we also see him contrasting the uh, virtuous woman uh, per, who personifies wisdom as contrasted then with the immoral woman. Um, he knew, Solomon knew, as he was talking to his son, maybe teenage boy, young adult, young man, he knew that there would be the constant allure and temptation in his life to turn to other sources of wisdom, that they would be very tempting, uh, very attractive, uh, very alluring. 
Now, the New Testament speaks very plainly about this situation, about how that God's truth, God's wisdom uh, would face competition from other sources of wisdom, appealing to us to listen to them and lay hold on them rather than to lay hold of God's truth. That's why Paul would tell his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. Be instant, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. In a similar way, then, to what we see in this passage, uh, Paul was talking about a fulfillment of all this, where there would come a time when men would be so preoccupied with their own lusts, their own lustful desires, that they would actually turn away from the truth of God because it contradicted the lifestyle that they wanted to lead. We see this happening in our world Uh, in a a way that none of us, I don't think, really could have anticipated even a few decades ago or a couple of decades ago. And honestly, the right to have sex, to put it plainly, however and with whomever a person may choose, is being so enshrined in today's culture that men and women are abandoning the truth of the Bible in droves because they know what the Bible says. Uh, They know that our uh, practice of sex, human sexuality, is confined within the covenant of marriage for husbands and wife. God did not speak obscurely about these things, but very plainly. And so, while these desires to do other things and go in other directions are so rampant in our culture, people then see what the Bible says and They go looking for a teacher who's going to tell them what they want to hear, itching ears, going to affirm what it is they wanted to do. Paul said it so plainly. They will have their own lust and they will turn away from the truth and heap to themselves teachers. This was not a new problem in Paul's day. It was a problem in Solomon's day. That's why that he set up this whole situation the way that he did, so that God's wisdom then is personified as a virtuous woman, as contrasted then with an immoral woman, and as he is speaking to his sons, he said, you are going to have to make a decision. You'll either follow God's wisdom, or you will follow after these competing voices of wisdom very powerfully. That doesn't mean that there wasn't specific applications that were made, uh, very physical applications as well as a spiritual application. We already saw a couple of weeks ago the instruction, for example, to drink water from your own cistern. And that was a way that Solomon encouraged marital fidelity among his sons. You be faithful to your wife. Drink water from your own cistern. But now we see the contrast. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 16, as he's talking about the immoral woman. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who likes understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet. 
What a contrast between drinking from your own cistern. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. So, obviously, there's a very personal, very physical application that he's making of these truths as he encourages his sons toward marital fidelity and warns them about the danger of infidelity and of heeding those seductive voices. And as I said a few weeks ago, I'll say again this morning, uh, this applies equally well to men and women today. Uh, Any women might be listening to an alluring voice (laughs) that's talking about bread eaten in secret. Uh, Don't listen. But as there is a literal, rather physical application of this, we have to know Solomon was comparing the virtuous woman to God's wisdom. We shouldn't let that throw us a lot because after all, God, before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, assumed a lot of different forms. Remember, at least one time, for example, he was a burning bush to Moses. He was a Jehovah angel to Abraham and to others. And so God assumed uh, these forms. And so we see it here in the Proverbs where God's wisdom, God's truth is spoken of within the form of this virtuous woman as the personification of God's wisdom. Look at how he describes wisdom at the beginning of the chapter, Proverbs 8 and 1. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city. This is, remember, it's the same thing he's told us earlier. Uh, Wisdom uh, doesn't speak in low whisper and back in the dark corner somewhere. Wisdom stands out boldly at the crossroads. Wisdom stands boldly at the gates and speaks plainly. Uh, To whom does she lift her voice? Uh, to you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men, mankind, humanity, people. As he begins then to call attention to God's creative activities in this chapter as a source of human happiness, he perhaps had David, his father's words in mind. In Psalm 8 and 3, David had said, When I consider your heavens, your heavens... When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? But aren't you glad that God has us in mind? That he's not so busy running the universe and we're just now discovering what an incredible task that is. But he's not so busy running the universe that he loses track of us. His mind, his attention, his affections, his words come to humanity. And so, as he speaks of wisdom, verse 6 says that it will speak of excellent things. Excellent. God's wisdom will speak of right things. God's wisdom speaks truth. God's wisdom speaks righteousness. God's wisdom speaks plainly. 
We all love John 3.16. It's probably, likely, one of the first verses in the Bible that you memorized. And uh, John 3.16, for all of its incredible truth in English, has only six words that are not monosyllables. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. (laughs) Such a profound passage of Scripture. But the reason why we all memorize it so early is because it's so simple. God wrote his word plainly to us. Easily understood. And that's what this passage tells us. God has spoken plainly. She promises wise counsel that would bring nobility to kings, to princes, to nobles, and judges. From the palace, to the institutions of higher learning, to courtrooms, to capital buildings, to the boardrooms, wherever. The wisdom of God promises riches and honor. To those who seek her. In the early 1800s, the Bible Society sent out a man named George Barrow to distribute copies of the New Testament in Spanish and, of course, in Spain. The effort originated in England. And England had, by that time, been profoundly impacted by the publication of the King James Version of the Bible that put the language of Scripture then in the vernacular of the common man. And it was being preached and taught all over England. And it was no surprise then that England became the primary source of Christian mission work around the world. George Barrow was put in jail for his efforts Uh, His shop in Madrid was closed down, shut down. The fierce opposition that he encountered from the Roman Catholics and the Spanish government forced him to return home. Their message was simple. Spain was not open to the Word of God at that time. Spanish conquistadors had looted and pillaged the New World and carried its famous galleons filled with gold across the sea to Spain. They expected all of that wealth to make the nation glorious and honorable. Instead, it came to nothing. It was Great Britain that ruled the world. It was Great Britain instead that was the leading source of Christian mission activity. What Proverbs says in this passage came to pass, the riches of God's wisdom was greater than the riches of gold and silver. And if you want to draw a parallel and continue on forward, there came a time, yes, when Great Britain and the English people as a whole began to turn away from God. The preaching that was once so prevalent uh, fell into, onto hard times. Churches closed all over England. Her zeal for mission work went away. Thank God the United States of America picked up that banner 
But we must learn from her mistake. If America abandons the word of God, then our source of glory and honor and riches and blessing goes with it. In our passage then, God's wisdom is described as a master craftsman. God is not a Johnny-come-lately. He's not a novice. When we're trusting God's wisdom, we're not trusting some apprentice who is just trying to learn his way and is going to make a lot of mistakes. No, no, this is not something he's learning his way along or making it up as he goes through trial and error. That's not who we deal with when we deal with God's wisdom. So the appeal to God's wisdom personified in this virtuous woman who is speaking then in this lengthy speech. It begins in verse 22 and goes all the way through verse 36. All the things then that wisdom is speaking. And she goes all the way back to eternity past in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old I've been established from everlasting from the beginning before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primeval dust of the world. As human beings, we we struggle here with our concept of time. We are bound to time. But it's only us then that can even conceive of such a thing as eternity past or eternity future. But the fact is that the Bible says there was a point at which time began. There is in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. And there's also an end of time. Then comes the end. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 24. And so there is eternity. But here we live in this marked out space stretch of that called time. Now, to be clear, our text projects our attention to the beginning of the way of God and before his works of old. And remember the words of the psalmist Moses in Psalm 90 when he said, before the mountains were brought forth, there ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. If this seems mind-boggling to us, it should be, but it's not unfamiliar. Remember that John's gospel begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. What John calls the Word. Solomon is calling wisdom in this passage. The idea brought forth in Proverbs 8 does not imply that God had a beginning, neither does John 1.1. Before there was anything, there was God. Before the mountains, before the seas, before the fountains, before the earth. Interestingly, Solomon even mentions the primeval dust. You know, it's been relatively recently that we've understand, understood that the universe is filled with incredible amounts of cosmic 
dust. And besides this, dust fills our atmosphere, our noses, our houses. Yeah, this church building on a continual basis. By the way, the Bible says we're made out of dust. Yeah, you got it. Genesis 2 and 7. And we're headed to dust. Genesis 3.19, if memory serves correctly. Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. We might wonder how Solomon would know that there was more to dust than just the dust of this earth, that there was dust of the universe. Well, Solomon was being informed by the one who made it. Not only was he before the universe became, he was before the dust became. He's, uh, he was there when there was none of that stuff. God was God before the earth, before the planets, before the stars. God was there. But as he projects our attention then to God's eternal activities, and eternity past, for lack of a better way of expressing it, he then jumps to his more present activities as he thinks about the creation of the world as we know it now. Verse 27 When he prepared the heavens, I was there. This is wisdom speaking. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. My delight was with the sons of men. Again, we see the similarities to John 1 where we are told that the Word was with God and the world was God, and we are immediately told that all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word in John 1. Wisdom in Proverbs 8. So while God's wisdom was at work in eternity past, God's wisdom is also manifested in the more recent past and the creation that we're so familiar with. He mentions the clouds. And I don't know if any of you, uh, I, I remember very vividly the first time I discovered that I had floaters in my eyes. I don't know if any of you have floaters in your eyes. Uh, the, uh, I've had them as far back as I can remember. But the first time that I discovered it was when I was laying out in the yard one day as a small boy looking up at the clouds. You wonder, why was I looking at the clouds? Because I had just got glasses and I could see those things for the first time. Before that, it was just kind of a white blob. And now all of a sudden, I could see leaves and I could see clouds. And I was just fascinated by them. So I laid out in the yard and just kind of looked at them one day. Hey... We didn't have iPads back in those days, kids. We had to go outside in the real world and find something to do. And if there was nothing else, we could look at the clouds. It worked out pretty good. Solomon brings them up in this passage. There's so many tons of water suspended in the atmosphere of this planet in the form of clouds that it, the number is mind-boggling. I'm not even going to attempt to... I, I can't even fathom it. How many tons of water are suspended in the clouds, the springs. I've always been fascinated by springs, watching that water come up out of the ground, the fountains of the deep, the seas, the foundation of the earth. We travel to the ocean for a reason. 
We climb the mountains for a reason. We can't see the foundations of the earth. The closest I think we can get to it is the volcanoes. And I've stood on the rim of two. Two. And looked down to where those foundations manifest themselves as magma and bubble forth. You smell the sulfur. It's brimstone in the Bible. We stand in awe when we stand at the sea, when we look at the clouds, when we look at the heavens, when we see the stars. There was a time when science believed the universe to be eternal. Discoveries in the early 1900s pointed to a beginning, a definite beginning of the universe. Einstein, for one, although many others joined him, was greatly annoyed by this research. But the fact is that science now knows that the universe had a beginning. When they came to that conclusion, they could look around and see a bunch of grinning theologians who had been there all along. We knew the universe had a beginning. Why? Because God says so. Very plainly. The vastness of eternity, where wisdom was God and wisdom was with God and cried out to the sounds of men, where she delights then in God's inhabited world, inhabited world, in humanity, which again parallels John's statements in John chapter 1. Because he said not only that the Word was with God and the Word was God and that all things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 4 says, In Him was life and the life was the light of men. Following the almost exact same progression that Solomon writes in this passage as wisdom describes her delight in the sons of men. Jesus would say it so wonderfully, for God so loved the world. It is here that this passage then emphasizes the work of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing as three persons, yet but one personality, the mystery of all mysteries, so that the word wisdom could be both with God and was God, and at the same time be beside God. Explain it to me. I can't. But I must believe it. Because the Bible declares it. God exists as one God. And yet three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The application then comes in verse 34, 32 rather. Now therefore listen to me my children for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. When we trust in God's wisdom, we remember we are dealing with the greatest of all master craftsmen. When it comes to telling us how to live life, 
when it comes to telling us how to enjoy life, how to be happy in our life, no one knows better than God what will make our life not only happy but also holy. His qualifications in this task of giving us wisdom for living are impeccable. You can read in this passage and you're almost seeing God's resume. This is why that I can tell you what to do and how to live. I'm a master craftsman. Look at all that I've done. Sadly, all too often these days, men are turning to thus says the mind of man. Thus says conventional wisdom. Thus says my desire to live my life my way. And they choose then the ideas of humanity repeatedly over thus saith the Lord God. But over it all, God's wisdom calls to us. Listen to me. Keep my ways. You'll be blessed if you do. You'll be happy. In me, there is life. In me, there is favor. And to hate the truth of God is to love death. That was true when wisdom said it so long ago. It's still true today. Aren't you glad that we serve the master craftsman who knows how to live and who gives us his wisdom? But everybody in this building today has to make that same choice that Solomon's sons did so long ago. We will make a choice. And as we go along, it becomes increasingly difficult to make that choice, to stand on what God says, as opposed to standing on what is popular, to stand for what God's wisdom teaches, as opposed to you know, what the world is saying. Um. But we must make that choice. All of us must. And we will make that choice. And I pray today that your choice will be to stay with the truth of God. Paul warned us that the day would come when men would not endure sound doctrine. The time would come when folks wouldn't like preaching much. And amazingly, I've been amazed to find out that some of the people who decide they didn't like preaching much was preachers themselves. It's been one of the most amazing things that I've seen play out in, in the last decade or two. As pulpit after pulpit after pulpit turns away from preaching the truth of God, shirks it, turns away from the authority of Scripture, begins to preach stories and fables and human ideas. And they do so in the name of going along with culture. They'll got this high noble cause they'll put together. Well, we want to we reach lost people. Hey, I want to reach lost people too. 
But I believe there's no greater way than to reach lost people than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the Bible says. Paul said it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, that's all humanity. Preach the gospel. I hope today that we can give some serious consideration to what this passage tells us about God's wisdom and the choice we have to make. If it's been tough now, and I'll talk to our younger audience that's here this morning. If it's been tough already, it's going to get tougher. I know what it's like for you going to school. I know what it's like. It's hard to be a Christian and stand on biblical truth on your high school campus. It's hard to be a Christian and stand on biblical truth on your college campus. It's hard to be a Christian and stand on biblical truth in your workplace. It's difficult. Many, many, many are the voices that cry out contradictory messages to God's wisdom. You must make a choice, and you will. I pray that you'll make the right one. Let's stand together, please.